I'll be preaching for you today from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. The title of the sermon is, His Name is Wonderful. Even with that great title, it still does not capture everything in this amazing, magnificent two verses from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our eyes this morning to behold the majesty and the beauty of Jesus Christ that is declared and proclaimed in this passage. I pray that every word that would bring attention to me or glory to me, that you would forbid me from saying it. But every word that proclaimed the majesty of Christ that I would boldly proclaim it from this pulpit today. Not only that is proclaimed, but it's also taken in the heart of the hearers and applied in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the text from today proclaim specific prophecy about the birth and deity of Jesus Christ. Over 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, did Isaiah proclaim this, not on his own accord, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are words that are breathed by God and documented by the prophet Isaiah. A story that many have managed over the years to neutralize, and I intentionally use this word neutralize because I think this story is so magnificent, so amazing, and so powerful that the only thing I can think of that would have any resemblance to this story and its effect is almost like an atomic bomb just descend on earth that would shatter beliefs and understanding. But even though with all the powerfulness of this message, over the years, over the decades and centuries, up until today, the people who belong to the kingdom of darkness have managed to make this story a fuzzy story, a very heartwarming story, and it's a nice story around Christmas trees and lights and gifts. But take the very heart of this message. I pray that this message today would bring back this powerful effect of this message in the heart of the believers, in the people of God, so that we can proclaim it also boldly, just like Isaiah has done. Isaiah 9, he arrives at a point when the nation of Israel is fractured, is confused, in despair, in sin, in rebellion. And that sounds very familiar. It sounds very familiar to who I was before I met Jesus Christ and before you met Him. 
Still some struggle with sin and rebellion every once in a while. But we are now belonging to a different fold, the fold of God Himself. So it's a message and a prophecy of good news. If you recall last Sunday's message, it's about the gloom, the darkness, and then all of a sudden the tone change of Isaiah. If you recall the, the words of gloom, anguish, contempt, darkness, yoke. These are the words that the nation of Israel found themselves, or maybe better said, Isaiah found himself asked by God to prophesy and bring this prophecy over the nation of Israel. And he said, but it doesn't end there, Israel. It doesn't end there, remnant of the Jewish people. It doesn't end there, church. He continues to talk about glory. He changed the tone to joy and victory and light and harvest. And then he reminds him of Midian, a battle that Gideon undertook and God decided that the victory would be his and no one else, as we have discussed last Sunday. So you see, it's a text that builds on last message where there was judgment, but God in His mercy condescends. So I have three points, and hopefully only three points, and I, by God's grace I'll be able to finish them on time. My first point of the message is, God in His mercy condescends. The second point, Christ in His deity transcends. And the last point will be, the Lord in His zeal upholds. First, God in His mercy transcends. And Isaiah himself in this passage, uh, in, this, uh, in, this book, in his book, especially in chapter 1, he put some glimpse of what God's plan is for His people. In Isaiah 1.26, he said, I will restore you, says the Lord. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness. So that's Isaiah chapter 1. And you fast forward to Isaiah 9, talking about gloom. But Isaiah knows this is not the end of the story. God says that I will restore you. He will restore my life. He restored my life. And I trust and I believe that He restored your life as well to become a son of God and a citizen of this city of righteousness. But why the incarnation? Did it have to be God Himself condescending to take on flesh like you and I have flesh and hands and feet and toes to provide this redemption? Was it necessary? Well, we know from the story of the Old Testament, it could have ended when Adam rebelled and sinned. God didn't have to have a redemption plan for at this time. But from eternity to eternity, He had this plan in His, in his mind, in the mind of God. So I want to pause for a second and reflect about the necessity of incarnation because we get bombarded with so many questions from people who question the authenticity of the Bible and ask you, why is it that God in His might and strength and power, this awesome God that you proclaim in your Bible, why does He have to take on the body of a man? Growing up in Egypt, uh, this was a point of uh, mockery. I can't find any other words from the Muslim neighbors to Christians. And they always harp on this one point. 
But we know this event, this story, that to them is foolishness, to us is the very heart of our gospel. So why the incarnation? Christ stepping out of eternity into our space and into our time physically. Why? Because Christ had to reveal God to man. Christ had to show an excellent way of Christian living and conduct. Christ had to live under the law and be perfect under the law to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And Christ is God-man to die for us in our place to atone for our sins. And lastly, which we have learned throughout the epistle to the Hebrews, to become our high priest. To become our high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who understand what it is for a child, a youth, a young man, and a man to be tempted. And in every temptation, he came out victorious. So why God became man? Because of all these reasons. We hear a lot in, uh, when we study the doctrine of Christ or Christology about the obedience of Christ and about the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. We know the active obedience of Christ means that he obeyed the law that man could not do. First Adam miserably failed from the get-go and us, we are failing every single day to, to uphold the beautiful, perfect, holy law of God every single day. But Christ came, God the man appeared so that he can be perfect under this law in an active obedience. Romans 5 verse 19 it says, For by the one man, which is Adam, for by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. It was said that the Son of God became a man that men might become sons of God. The Son of God became a man that men might become sons of God. And that's what God the Son, Jesus Christ, did and accomplished for us. As you can see here in Isaiah's Prophecy, it's all in the past tense. He's prophesying in a past tense to tell you how much the confidence and the strength and the amazement that God is giving him as he writes this Holy Scripture to us. That is, it's a done. It's done even though it's going to happen more than 700 years after Isaiah, after Isaiah's death. But he put it in the past tense. You fast forward in the New Testament and we have Paul in Galatians telling us that in the fullness of time, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. He came in the fullness of time. It was the most perfect time, not a second before, not a second after, not a week or a month or a year before, or a week or a year after. But also, in the perfect location, one of the things that I have been studying recently just the geography uh, that, that, uh, in, uh, in this area of Israel and where Jesus Christ was born and why specifically was this one location chosen. 
and the amazement, and I think it's, it's obvious, but it also gives you so much hope that God intentionally chose this location because in that, in that time, and still up to this day, it was the crossroad of all highways and byways and trade and commerce and war. So you will see multitudes of nations upon nations coming to this area. And He wants us to be this city on a hill. He wants us to be that witnesses, those witnesses that would proclaim the gospel to people who are hungry for the gospel. So He chooses this location, not haphazardly. He didn't just pick something in the Middle East because it's just a nice area. But precisely because the very nature of God is fellowship with man and reaching out first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, then to us. So He came not a second earlier, not a second late. He came in the fullness of time in the most perfect location physically to be, to be born of a Virgin Mary. First, I want to focus on the word for in verse 6. For to us a child. When you say the word for, you think about also therefore and why it, what, what happens here. Why does he use the word for? And again, I want to reflect on that. He, I, meaning Isaiah, now he's proclaiming this wonderful news to the nation of Israel that is fractured and broken and in the gloom. But he says, wait, this is not the end of the story. There will be glory. There is glory that is coming. And the only reason you and I and Isaiah can have any hope of the future, of tomorrow, of glory or light or victory that is in the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm glad that that's the case also in, in this passage of the text right now. Isaiah says, from gloom to glory because only Jesus Christ is appearing. He's the foundation of any joy. He's the foundation of any victory that you and I may hope to have. Glory and hope must be anchored first and last in the person of Christ. If your hope is in something else, it's time to confess this sin and ask God to forgive you and ask Jesus Christ to be this cornerstone of who you are and what your hope is built on. Isaiah, even though what he's describing is a military difficulty, a fractured nation, exile, captivity, but he doesn't say, well, I have great news from gloom to glory because we will have acquire this amazing military weapon that will give us the edge over our enemy. He doesn't say that. It is not about self-assertion. It's not about self-actualization. It's not about military prowess. It is only about Jesus Christ and His advent, His arrival, His appearance. And then He says to us, for to us, in our current condition, in Israel's miserable condition at that time, and He came to us also in our current condition. There is sovereignty of God here in this passage. He came to us. It's, it's a sovereignty of God in His election. He came to us, but not by us. He came to us, but not by our own accord, by our own efforts. We always have to reflect on how we have become a children of God. It wasn't a moment when we have just mustered our courage and we had an epiphany of what eternal life means and then we have made the first step and asked God to enter our lives. Yes, there is faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, there is repentance in Jesus Christ. But He had to draw us to Him. 
Um, I believe it's in the Gospel of John when it's, it talks about Jesus Christ and God drawing us to Him. And uh, there was a debate that I heard recently about the Armenian uh, way of salvation, meaning it's really 99.5% God and this one half percent is us to make that first step. And the other side, uh, the Calvinist view of election and salvation said, How, when was the last time you saw water being coming out on its own accord from the deep well? It has to be drawn. You have to have the bucket and go down and actually draw it out. A child is born. A son is given. Isn't that amazing? You talk about this serious military situation that the nation of Israel has find themselves in. 700, 800 years before the appearance of Christ. And the solution is a child, is a baby born in a manger. That is always has been God's method of confounding the wisdom of the world. This is his method of turning things upside down. Yes, he was a baby, all right. But it was a baby that even troubled kings and leaders and authorities. He still... His, the, the, the very notion of Jesus Christ himself still caused people to be troubled. Herod was troubled in Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Brothers and sisters, it's still the same thing today. When you mention Jesus Christ, it's going to be a divisive thing. It will never be always have a unanimous vote on Jesus Christ, even in the year 2023. There will be good news when you say, Jesus Christ, God the man, appeared. And for others, this will be difficult news, harsh news, bad news. Jewish rabbis who uh, still are waiting for the Messiah in the year 2023, not acknowledging that this is the Messiah, this is Jesus Christ in His full deity. In this passage, they call this passage, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, the torture chamber of Jewish rabbi, because they have hard time until today to explain away the majesty of the birth of Jesus Christ and the accuracy of the prophecy of the prophet Isaiah. And they come up with all different iterations of what this means. Anything but Christ. It cannot mean Christ that was born in Bethlehem. Second Samuel 7, uh, 7.14 I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The promise has been always all along for people who have eyes to hear. Or eyes to see and ears to hear. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't say, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and here we stop. Even, it's a magnificent part of it, the scripture, but he continues, Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to explain who this son is, who this child is going to be. And that's when we move to the second point of our message today. Christ in His deity transcends. You have God in His mercy condescend and take on flesh in the first part and then now Christ Jesus. Christ, of course, is a title. It's not the very, it's not the very name of Jesus. Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua. Yeshua Messiah meaning 
Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah. It says here that the government shall be upon his shoulder. We know that in Isaiah 22, the shoulder is, it means the authority of leadership, the authority of the kingship. The key of the house of David was given and was laid on the shoulders of Eliakim in Isaiah 20, 22. But he's not like any other king that you hear about today. Kings of today and even kings of yesteryears, they have always been around a physical security and their name and their reputation and their might and what they can exercise in terms of authority. Even until to this day in an age when we hear about democracy, I think it still runs deep in the heart of man to assert himself as a king or as a prince. But this king, this prince, though he had every reason to be just that, he comes and take on the government on his shoulder in two ways, in honor, but also in the burden that is yours and mine for him to take on his shoulder. His kingdom is love and righteousness and justice. So he bears the burden of his people. Not only the honor that is due him, but also the responsibility of governing his people. Back to verse 6. For us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be... And then he describes exactly what this name is. And if you pause about the word his name or the name of Jesus Christ, it's a name that is absolutely and utterly and commonly used and misused and people settle just to have the name of Christ and by that they can uh, somehow gain assurance or they gain admittance into the kingdom of God but it's not just the name it's not the mere name so do not settle for the mere name but feast on his attributes, attributes which we will hear about now feast on his essence Christ, Jesus Christ, is homo usias, as you have heard or read in the Nicene um, Creed here, Confession. One substance with the Father. People will say, well, I love Jesus. And sometimes we are tempted to stop there because, well, you can't argue with that. But one thing I learned, and I remember Pastor Charles telling me that when he talks with people from maybe outside the church, to try to talk to them about who Jesus is when they say, oh, I'm a Christian or I love Jesus. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me who that Christ is that you believe in because it could be a different version that you have concocted in your own mind or maybe because of some bad theology, bad doctrine, bad teaching over the years. But pause and reflect on that name. Don't just settle for a name as a mere name. So what and how and why do you know about him matters the most. His name shall be called Wonderful. There is some, uh, I guess, two different camps in explaining this verse. Because some will say the word Wonderful qualifies Counselor. So it should read Wonderful Counselor, comma, Mighty God, comma, Everlasting Father, comma, Prince of Peace. I tend to think, based on what I read, the other camp has this notion of wonderful, comma, counselor, comma, mighty God. 
Either or, they are both right. Because he's a wonderful counselor. In his counseling and his wisdom, he is wonderful. He is magnificent. There is no improvement upon his wisdom. But he is wonderful, period. He is wonderful, period. In Judges 13, verse 18, this was a, an appearance, an actual pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. If you haven't heard about that or read about that, there are some passages in the Old Testament that talks about the appearance of Christ even before His physical birth in Bethlehem. And those are one of them where He appeared to the father of Samson. And after he talks to Samson's father and telling him that this man will be special, this judge will be special, his father asked him, what is your name? And that was the answer in Judges 13, 18. Why are you asking about my name? And it is wonderful. And the translation here could be also a secret. Why are you asking about my name? And it's a secret. It's hidden. It is supernatural. It's miraculous. And it's beyond any human comprehension. I don't care how many doctrine you will study. And I don't care how many degrees you will have in theology and in Christology. You will not ever reach a point in your life where you say, I've got it. I know who Jesus Christ is. And I can put, wrap my arm and my mind and my hand around who He is. He is supernatural. He is miraculous. He is wonderful. He was wonderful in His birth. He was wonderful in His ministry. He was wonderful in all His miracles. In His redemption. He was wonderful even when He was crushed on the cross. He was wonderful in His resurrection. As certainly He was wonderful in His ascension. He is wonderful as we speak now. Seated at the right hand of the Father. So the translation of the word wonderful, according to the dictionaries, you will see it means to separate, to distinguish, or to make great. This is your Savior. This is my Savior. He is exalted above every and all ordinary course of nature. And that's why that sounds like foolishness to the scientists of today that will mock you and I for seeing that God became man and took on flesh. So he is wonderful. And yes, he is also a counselor. Counseling here means the wisdom. Who can counsel the Lord? He doesn't need to counsel anyone. He doesn't need to ask questions and gather information. He doesn't need to learn new things as he progresses. As we, have, we will hear later in the sermon about different heresies attacking the deity of Christ. He is wonderful and He's a counselor. Colossians 2 verse 3, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Any system of theology, maybe not theology, any system of worldview, any system of understanding, any system of philosophy, that's the word I wanted to say, philosophy, that is not based on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, is bound to fail and to fall short. Contrast that counseling with the worldly wisdom. Ephesians 1 verse 11 it says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes or the purpose of Him 
who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Very comforting, very reassuring to know that. That when you seek the counsel of the Lord in His Word and through His people, you know that you have reached the very source of wisdom. First Corinthians one twenty three, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wider than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He is the only origin of true wisdom. Isn't that amazing when you talk about the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ, in this prophecy? We are talking about a season that we hear all the time on the news, that Christmas somehow is one of the highest seasons of depression and suicide in America. I find that just amazing and mind-boggling. But also when I settle down and think about it deeper, I understand how that is becoming for people who have no hope can fall in this despair and depression. So he is your wonderful counselor. He is also the mighty God. He is a mighty God. That's why I say that Christ in his deity here transcends. He will not remain just this little cute child in the manger in Bethlehem. He is fully God. That is why he is also called Emmanuel in seven in Isaiah seven, God with us. And that's why this passage has been attacked multiple times on many levels, on many uh, worldviews and many philosophies. The deity of Christ attacked. This is Satan's plan from the start. From the beginning, attack the deity of Christ and the person of Christ. False religions are false because they got Christ wrong. False religions are false because they got Christ wrong. They give him some honor, but they don't give him the honor that he's due. By contrast, as Christians, we ought to proclaim clearly and without any compromise the falsehood of other religions. We talked about the Nicene Creed today and, and uh, it brings to mind, of course, historically the Arius or the Arian heresy that believed that Jesus Christ is uncreated or they deny that son, the Son is uncreated. So they, they will say He was before all creation. They will say that, they will, they will admit that, but they will not say that He is un, uncreated. We, we say in our confession today, begotten, not made. But they, uh, during that time, in around 300 AD, the first heresy, or one of the first early heresies that attacked the church, is in the deity of Christ. They said that the Son is the first and the greatest creation of the Father. Another heresy that attacked the deity of Christ is the dynamic monomonarchianism. And I will explain that word, what it means. Monarchianism, mono meaning one, 
Arc or arch meaning head. So dynamic monarchianism basically stated that Jesus is not fully God, but he was adopted by God the Father at the moment of his baptism. You know that when the voice came from heaven that they think this is the time when God decided I will adopt this man and he will become my son. Of course that is a heresy. And another heresy along those lines is modalistic monarchianism. And this we have heard even up until today we hear about it that as if God is not three person in one essence but he is actually three essences. He's wearing three masks. He can wear a mask to become the father and he wore that mask before the appearance of Christ and then from the birth of Christ to his ascension he wore the second mask which is Christ and then after Christ's ascension he wore the third mask which is the Holy Spirit. Again, heretical. But do you think heresies are done, we're done, we have no more heresies today? Absolutely not. We still have heresies that are alive and well Sadly, today, still some hold stubbornly to the notion that Christ never proclaimed His deity. And I want your attention here because this is very important. And this is where some evangelicals, sadly, so-called evangelicals, who downgrade a little bit Christ, they will not give Him the full deity. And they will say in some of the scripture that He did not completely and totally declare that He is God. And that is also wrong. In 2022, last year, Ligonier's ministry partnered with another ministry to do some kind of a survey. They call it just to check the pulse of the evangelical church and America in general. So they interview and survey. They surveyed last year about 3,000 people. Almost a third of them were evangelicals. They didn't just pick anyone on the street. They picked people from churches, evangelical churches, people who said... That's what they believe. Before, before they can even be enrolled in this survey, they have to say yes to these four questions or four statements. That they believe that the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. They said, it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus as their Savior. They say, yeah, we believe that. They also said, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. They say, yeah, we believe that too. And they also said, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone are as their Savior receive God's gift of eternal salvation. That's powerful, right? You, if you pick people who say yes to all these four statements, how can you come up with any discouraging or difficult to swallow survey results? But sadly, that is what the survey showed, that on, almost half of them Actually, less than half admitted to the deity of Christ. 43% of those people who said these four statements, they wiggled around. They compromised greatly in an area that you cannot compromise in. Three-fourths of them, they think that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Sounds familiar because I just mentioned that in the early heresies. So in 2022, that's last year, three-fourths of evangelical people who said, yes, we believe in the authority of the Bible, 
and that Christ died for our sin and He's the only way. Three-fourths of them say that Jesus is the first and greatest being and created by God. So did, did He or did He not say that He is God? Did Christ proclaim His deity? And I can tell you unequivocally and absolutely, if you study the Word of God, you will see everywhere in the Bible that the deity of Christ proclaimed. He said that He has control over life, over creation, over death. Does this sound like someone who's not God? He said He's the one who determined eternal destiny. He has power to answer prayers. He has authority to forgive sins, to, con to have control over the angels, power to open the kingdom, the right to receive praise and worship. He took on the name of Yahweh. He said the many I am statements in the Bible, in the New Testament, the door, the bread, the light. He said before Abraham was, I am. He said, I and the Father are one. And if you have any doubt, or anyone has any doubt, look at the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word with God, it's not just with, meaning I just come and sit next to you, or I follow you, or we walk alongside each other. The very literal translation of the word with God, it's face to face with God. It's the most intimate that you can even imagine in your own feeble human mind, understanding the word with. So He is our wonderful Savior. He is our Counselor. He is our mighty God. He is also our everlasting Father. And here another confusion that I need to clarify because some people will point to this and see, they will say, you see, there is no Trinity. Why are we talking about the Trinity? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Where here it clearly says that He is the Son and the Father. The everlasting Father. And I can only thank God for all the commentaries that uh, explain this. And all the uh, translations that explain this. The better translation for this would be the Father of the future age. So Christ, God the Son... God in the flesh is our father of the future age. Basically, he owns the future. He authors the future. Just like he authored our past and he authors the past period. Israel's hope when Isaiah was prophesying was just for a temporary solution for this captivity and this humiliation by the Assyrian Empire. But here he's talking about an everlastingness of this Messiah. We think temporal and he thinks eternal. We think just a solution now, but he thinks adoption for you and I. He is the father of our future age. So I pray that we live as we live today. We live also in view of eternity. He is also our Prince of Peace. There is blessedness in Him. There is misery and there is restlessness without Him. There is also prosperity. Not the prosperity that is being preached now, but the prosperity in the sense that you have blissfulness and peace and comfort 
in knowing that He is that. He is that wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Your Everlasting Father, and Your Prince of Peace. In John 14, Peace I leave to you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives that I give. Let not your heart be troubled. That's the peace that Christ offers and promised to His people. In Romans 5, we are justified by faith. We have peace with God. Before the justification, before the election, we have no peace. In fact, we have animosity. We have every reason to be restless and depressed and in despair. But after being justified and reconciled by God, we now can say and rest in this peace and assurance that we have peace now with God. So if your hope is, not, is in the next president that will fix the country or the next world leader that will fix the world, your hope is in the wrong place. Your hope is, ought to be only in the Lordship and the peace of Jesus Christ. And later on, Isaiah will expound on this because he will tell us how we have this peace. There was a price to be paid. That is in Isaiah 53 where he was crushed and despised and chastised for our sins and iniquities. That's the price of that peace. It was a very precious price. The attacks on the deity of Christ continues. It doesn't end. I feel like I want to preach to the young people in the church now because if the heat of these attacks are at this level right now, it will continue to get hotter and hotter and hotter. And if you're not on a strong foundation, you can be shaken. You can compromise. And I pray, and my prayer today for you as an elder and someone's preaching right now, that you would stay steadfast in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and not become part of those 43% or more. It's actually 43% who said Christ is full deity. That's the 57% who compromised the deity of Christ. I pray that you would not be part of these statistics. Colossians 2.9 For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And that takes me to the last point of my sermon, which is the Lord in His zeal upholds. The Lord in His zeal upholds. You can rejoice and be excited about all these amazing prophecies that Isaiah brings to the nation of Israel and to the church today. But there is a stamp of assurance that this is the condition that it will happen. That this will not be dependent or conditional on things that may happen in the future. The zeal of the Lord upholds this. And we see that in this passage, this verse in, in uh, verse 7. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. So His kingdom is not a shrinking kingdom. His kingdom is not a kingdom that is, yes, there are trials and difficulties right now. Yes, there are people who uh, give up the hope of Christ. And if you look closely at people who forsake their salvation, they have not been truly of us from the very beginning. So the kingdom of Christ is an ever-increasing kingdom, ever-progressing kingdom. Matthew 16 Christ Himself said that He will build that church. He will build His church. Ephesians 5. He is the head of the church. Acts 20. When Paul was saying his goodbyes to the elders in Ephesians, he's saying that 
This is the church of God which he purchased with his blood. There is no uh, swaying around or swerving from these truths that are proclaimed in the 6th verse of Isaiah 9. Because Isaiah 9 verse 7 put a seal of assurance on all these wonderful promises. So amid the shocks and the vexation, we ought to cultivate the peace of Christ because He's got us in His hand. He's got His kingdom in His hand. Colossians 3.15 Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And then He says, On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It tells us that the Redeemer will spring forth from the seed of David. In 2 Samuel 7, says that. And it says that it's upon the throne of David. Acts 2, when Peter preached his famous pre, uh, sermon that won thousands to Christ, he said these words, Brothers, I may ask you, or I may say to you, with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us, to this day, speaking about King David, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. This was in accordance all along to the promises given to David. Daniel 7 talks about the kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom. Psalm 73 Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And that sweeping and those slippery places for all other kingdoms except for the kingdom of God. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word zeal also needs to be explained and expounded because it's not just some kind of a desire that you have and say, I'm zealous for this. It's actually a heart that is inflamed with love for His people. That's exactly what the word means. Inflamed with an uncommon and extraordinary desire to promote the salvation of the church. I do not need to worry tonight or any night or Pastor Charles about this church because this is God's church. And He has promised over and over again that the price that he paid for this church is too precious to let go of his church. For he will be all on flame with amazing love for his believers. There is no reason for us to be anxious. There is no reason for us to second guess what is happening in the world today. If you have these words magnified and lived out and demonstrated and proclaimed by the person and works of Christ then there is no reason to worry. There is no reason to be anxious. But we have every reason to hold on to this wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. You know, when somebody starts, come to you and, and say, start his talk by, and you can tell they're very uh, excited about something, and they start saying, true story, true story. You know, what's coming is something that's very incredible or something that will take a little bit of courage and thinking to believe. And this is what I want to come to you with today. 
And I hope that's the message, is true story. God became man. That is the only hope that you and I have. If you take this out of the equation of the Bible, we have no Christianity. We have no theology. It wasn't just optional. Christ Jesus had to come if we were to have a saving hope. Let us pray together.